All right. So God's wisdom. So when speaking of God's wisdom, of course, this is only one aspect of his his knowledge. We talked about some other things in the weeks prior. God's perfect wisdom is shown by his perfect knowledge. Romans chapter 16, verse 27, it says to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Amen. And then Romans chapter 11, verse 36, it says for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. And I think we've repeated that verse over the past couple of weeks. In comparison, God's comparison, uh, his wisdom in comparison to other gods, false gods, when you compare them to God, you see that other gods are dead, deaf, and dumb when it comes to God. Okay, Our God is the only true God and therefore the only wise God. Now, as with knowledge, God possesses wisdom. Again, he is the giver of both. There is no knowledge that does not come from God. There is no wisdom that does not come from God. He has perfect knowledge and perfect wisdom. Anything that we have, no matter how high in esteem you you hold a person, Understand that that wisdom that they have, it comes first from God. Job chapter 38, verses 36 through 37. Let's turn there and read. Job chapter 38, starting in verse 36, it says, Who has put wisdom in the innermost being or given understanding to the mind? Who can count the clouds by wisdom or tip the water jars of the heavens? Uh, Chapter 12 of Job, verse 13, Job 12, verse 13. Sorry, when it's cold, my fingers get cold and (laughs) it's hard to turn the pages. But Job chapter 12, verse 13, it says, with him are wisdom and might to him belong counsel and understanding. Remember, this is God that we are talking about. He is the possessor of wisdom and knowledge. He is the giver of both. First Corinthians chapter two. Verses five through ten. First Corinthians two verses five through ten, starting in verse five, it says so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, 
the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the spirit. For the spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Again, that's speaking to God's wisdom, God's knowledge. Back to Proverbs. Turn back to Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6, and then chapter 21, verse 30. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6, and then chapter 21, verse 30. Chapter 2, verse 6, it says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Chapter 21, verse 30. It says there is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. Again, the Lord possesses wisdom and knowledge. He is the giver of both. Job chapter nine, verse four says this. It says wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has defied him without harm? Who has defied God without harm? There is no one. Now, people may get away with things by the mercy of God. He may allow things to pass. But sooner or later, those sinful things that you do against God in defiance are going to catch up one way or another. Now, as with knowledge, God's wisdom is infinitely greater than human wisdom. We said God's knowledge far surpasses any human knowledge, we can't even begin to compare ourselves in knowledge to God's infinite knowledge. The same thing with his wisdom. We cannot begin to compare. We try to outsmart God sometimes, things that think that we know better than he does. We go against his word in sin and we end up paying for that, right? Because we do not know better than God knows. The definition of wisdom, and this is from Noah Webster's dictionary. It's a pretty long one, so I wouldn't even try to <laughs> try to write it out. If you want it all, listen back to the podcast. <laughs> but this is a pretty long one. So the definition of wisdom is this: it says the right use or exercise of knowledge, the choice of laudable ends and of the best means to accomplish them. This is wisdom in act, effect, or practice. If wisdom is to be considered as a faculty of the mind, it is the faculty of discerning or judging what is most just, proper and useful. And if it is to be considered as an acquirement, it is the knowledge and use of what is best, most just, most proper, most conducive to prosperity or happiness. 
in scripture, we see wisdom as human learning, knowledge of arts and sciences. In theology, wisdom is true religion, godliness, piety, the knowledge and fear of God and sincere and uniform obedience to his commands. Um, so what does it mean to be wise? What is the definition of wise? The definition is properly having knowledge, hence having <coughs> excuse me, the power of discerning and judging correctly or of discriminating between what is true and what is false, between what is fit and proper and what is improper. The word wisdom often appears to be parallel to or correlated with knowledge and understanding. The Hebrew word for uh, for wisdom is hakma. In the Greek, it's Sophia. These meanings can carry with them the numerance of practical skill, such as an artistic uh, craftsmanship. Um, Exodus chapter 28, verse three. And also and then we'll turn from there to verse I mean, to chapter 31 and then to chapter 35, just to get a picture of what this looks like. Exodus chapter 28. Verse three. It says, you shall speak to all the skillful persons whom I have endowed with the spirit of wisdom, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister as a priest to me. Chapter 31, verses three through six. Starting in verse three, it says, I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge and in all kinds of craftsmanship to make artistic designs for work in gold in silver and in bronze and in the cutting of stones for settings and in the carving of wood that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. And behold, I myself have appointed with him a holy the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. And in the hearts of all who are skillful, I have put skill that they may make all that I have commanded you. So, again, that's that artistic craftsmanship. Again, that's something that is perceived as wisdom, something that is given uh, by God. It was exhibited by the Lord in the creation of. Of the world. So Psalm 104, verse 24, and Psalm 136, verse 5. <coughs> Psalm 104, verse 24, it says, O Lord, how many are your works in wisdom? You have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. And then Psalm 136, verse five. Psalm 
It says, to him who made the heavens with skill, for his loving kindness is everlasting. So, God's wisdom, his artistic skill, is seen in the creation of the world. He is the master designer, the master artist. You know, we do have skill that the Lord gives to us, but it can it, it pales in comparison to what he has and what he does. God's wisdom gives the universe structure and stability. Proverbs 319. You can write that down for later to look at that. Um, wise men and women study the wisdom of God. First Kings chapter four, verses twenty nine through thirty four. Let's turn there. First Kings chapter four, starting in verse twenty nine, it says, now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all men, than Ethan, than Ezraite, Heman, Calcal, Darda the sons of Mahal, and his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. Men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon, from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So wise men and women study wisdom. Again, it comes from God. We rely on wisdom's law-like behavior. Uh, And we'll talk about that a little more later. But a quote from Thomas Watson, it says this. It says, God wisely set the sun and earth at just the right distance from each other, closer and we would fry, but farther away and we would freeze. So, you know, it just gives you something to think about that God in his creation, just how detailed he was in creation and how wise and he holds things together. The infinite wisdom of the creator distinguishes him from other gods. Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. Starting in verse 11, it says, Thus you shall say to them, the gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding. He has stretched out to he has stretched out (coughs) the heavens. So, again, infinite wisdom of the creator. God distinguishes him from other gods. Any questions so far? Any questions or comments?
All right. <clears throat> Wisdom empowers its possessors to fulfill the righteous and royal functions of a just ruler and his officers. So we expect for those who are in positions of authority to use wisdom. That's why we call on those who are in positions of authority to submit to God and to his rule, to rule justly. You know, just because a ruler is in position, uh, in a position of authority, they did not usurp the authority of God. And just because they're not a believer does not mean that they don't have to operate under the principles of Scripture because they are there because the Lord put them there. So it's up to us as the church to remind them, listen, you are to rule the way that God's word tells you to rule because he is the one who put you there and you're going to give an account to him. So they need godly wisdom. Not only is it that we confront those in authority, but what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to pray for them as well, right? That is our duty. That is what we're commanded to do. So we're supposed to pray for them that they would rule wisely and justly. So wisdom, it's also it's divine, divine wisdom. Wisdom is a kingly attribute and requisite for rule. Proverbs chapter eight, verses 13 through 16. Proverbs chapter eight, verses 13 through 16. It says this, it says the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in the evil way in the perverted mouth. I hate counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding power is mine by me. Kings reign and rulers decree justice by me. Princes rule and nobles. All who judge rightly. So, again, there's that wisdom that those who are in authority are supposed to use, supposed to exercise. They are supposed to seek God out for wisdom in their, uh, you know, in their sphere of authority. God gives wisdom. uh, God gives God's wisdom. Sorry. God's wisdom glorifies him as Lord. His wisdom is an attribute of sovereign lordship over the world. And his supremacy is the supremacy of his kingdom. So that's wisdom. uh, That's that's God's wisdom. But what does wisdom in man look like? And we'll just hit three, you know, three quick points here. At the core of it, true wisdom in man is the fear of the Lord, right? That's what it is, which is the awe-filled awareness that he is holy and almighty king. Job chapter 28, verse 28.
Job 28, 28, and to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Some other verses that you can write down. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, chapter 9, verse 10, and chapter 15, verse 33. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, chapter 9, verse 10, and chapter 15, verse 33. God's laws teach us wisdom of living in active submission to his will. God's laws teach us wisdom of living in active, active submission to his will. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. Deuteronomy 4, 5 through, 5 through 8. It says, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law, which I am setting before you today? So God's law teaches us wisdom of living in active submission to his will. What is the opposite of wisdom? Folly. Right. Folly is the opposite. It is a denial of God's reign in justice. It's a denial of God's reign in justice. So back to the book of Psalms, chapter 14, verse one, 92, verse six, and then 94, verses seven through 11. And at some point, I'm just going to give you scriptures. I have. So many scripture references for tonight, it's we're not going to get through them all. So some I'll just tell you the points and the scriptures to match up with them for later, uh, later study. Unless you all want to stay here until 11 o'clock at night. I'm good with that. <laughs> what do you think, Andy? No. <laughs> all right. Psalm chapter 14. Verse one. <clears throat> The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. No one who does good. Psalm chapter 92, verse 6. A senseless man has no knowledge. Nor does a stupid man understand this. 
Um, chapter 94, verses 7 through 11. They have said, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. Pay heed, you senseless among the people. And when will you understand, stupid ones? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who chastens the nations, will he not rebuke? Even he who teaches man knowledge. The Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are a mere breath. Yes, it says stupid. <laughs> see, this just shows the folly of, of man. Okay, we can't we can't outsmart God. We're not wiser than him. We're not going to benefit by disobeying his principles and his rules and his commands. We must follow after him. So what is God's wisdom? The aspect of divine life by which God is infinitely skilled to create the world and rule it well as the righteous Lord. The riches of royal intelligence is Romans 11.33 tells us, by which he directs his glory. Again, we read 11.36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Or even using the unbelief of some for the salvation of others, as Romans 11.11 tells us. And we just went through Romans 11. Pastor Joe took us through that. So, you know, you kind of understand what that is saying. God's infinite knowledge at the service, his infinite knowledge is at the service of his holy will. William Ames says this, God's understanding is infinite because he perceives the whole truth of and reason for everything. Stephen Charnock, no higher goal or reason than God's glory. God arranges all things to the praise of his glory. In Ephesians chapter one, verses eight through twelve. You can write that down to look at later on. So now <clears throat> God's wisdom in Christ. Let's talk about that. Any questions before we move on? I don't want to help me out this week. I'm trying to hold back coughs. Usually if somebody starts talking, I can cough and then get to <laughs> <laughs> All right. God's wisdom in Christ. Christ is the embodiment of divine wisdom joined to human nature. Christ is the embodiment of divine wisdom joined to human nature. Wonderful counselor. Isaiah nine, chapter nine, verse six tells us he is anointed by the spirit of wisdom and understanding so far so that he overflows in the fear of God and executes his righteous will. This is God's righteous will. Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 through 5. Isaiah 11 verses 1 through 5. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch 
from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness. He will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness, the belt about his waist. So anointed by the spirit of wisdom and understanding so that he overflows in the fear of God and executes his righteous will. <clears throat> Christ, he gives wisdom to his servants. Luke chapter 21, verse 15. And if you don't believe that I have a ton of scripture references here, let me. These are all the scripture references. <laughs> if you want them, you can have them. But Luke chapter 21, verse 15. For I will give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. So he gives Christ gives knowledge or wisdom to his servants. He is personified wisdom. Proverbs chapter eight. We read through that. That wisdom we read through a little bit of it, but that wisdom finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to go back and read all of uh, Proverbs 8 in light of that. <clears throat> A quote that I read, it says, God glorified himself alone by hanging his wisdom on the cross. See, the world was not ready for that when Christ was here in bodily form. They're not ready for it now. And they will not be ready when he returns. Now, though the world will see him in all of his glory and splendor, then for now, these things are concealed from men. It's foolishness. When you tell men about Christ and who he is, it cannot be revealed until the light of the gospel is shined on them and they are regenerated. And they, that heart of stone then becomes that heart of flesh where now they can respond to the message of the gospel and then see the light. The blinders come off. Then they can see truly who Christ is. Until that point, they are blinded and everything about Christ and about God is foolishness to them. First Corinthians chapter one <coughs> Verses 23 and 24, it says, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. All right. When we are united to Christ by God's effectual call Christ is made unto us wisdom so still 
in first Corinthians chapter one, verse 30, it says, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. <clears throat> so that just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. So in Christ, God has made manifest to heaven and earth the unsearchable riches of wisdom that he purposed before the creation of the world. Ephesians chapter three, verses eight through 11. Write that down for later on. Ephesians uh, chapter three, verses eight through 11. <coughs> and again, consequently, God's wisdom has ordered all things in Christ Jesus. So. The verse that I just read, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Another quote that I read this week, it says, in redemption, God wisely aimed for the highest purpose, the manifestation of his glory in all his attributes for the adoration and praise of his people. God did this by the wisest of means. And we learn as we search out God's word and we learn more about Christ and we learn more about the things that God has revealed to us in his son, in his word. We get to see just how unfathomable the ways of God truly are. Neither man nor angels knew how God would show mercy while satisfying his justice. And if, um, just this Sunday when I was talking about the propitiation and just that explanation there, it's just amazing how we were reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. No other way, no other way. And the angels saw they, they looked to see who this savior was going to be. The prophets did not know. They believed that the Messiah was to come and they wanted to know who it was, but it was hidden from them. Now we have scripture here in front of us. And though we do not see Jesus Christ, we have all that we need to know in his word. So we must search out scripture to find out more about him and about the God that we serve. One more quote. It says, God became man to save men who hated him. The wisdom of God conceived the inconceivable. God himself in the person of the son became the mediator of saving grace and in his humanity died on the cross. That's powerful. That is that's a, a quote from uh, Joel Beakey. Very powerful preacher, by the way. If you haven't listened to any of his preaching, I would suggest it to you. And really, his book, um, the uh, his Reform Systematic Theology, has been helping me out a lot. That in the Existence and Attributes of God by Stephen Charnock. Good stuff. Good stuff. Hmm? How do you spell his name? Uh, Joel Beakey. Yeah. What's your last name? B e a k y. B e e k e. <laughs> yeah, whenever we um, whenever we first started out studying the attributes of God, I had mentioned a number of resources that I was going to be using those two. Steve Lawson, his uh, 
you know, his book on the attributes of God. A.W. Pink, of course, you know, those are all good resources when studying the uh, the attributes of God. It really helps to understand his word and his attributes um, in a doctrinal way. So <clears throat> what should we do? You know, when thinking of God's wisdom, knowing all these things about him, what should we do? We should seek to grow in knowledge of God, right? We should rely upon his wisdom when we're undergoing trials. You know, we don't want to try to go through things on our own and using our own knowledge and wisdom. We have God there to lead us and guide us and direct us all the way. We're to cast all of our cares on him. We're to trust his knowledge when we can't understand his ways. So everything isn't going to be so obvious to us, but we trust in God. We trust in his will. We trust his his wisdom and his ways or his knowledge and his ways. Admire God's knowledge and wisdom displayed in all of his works is meditate on his word. But the things that he has revealed to us in creation, <clears throat> take all of those things in. Stop and just look sometimes at the things that the Lord has made. Even the people in your life that you love, that the Lord has allowed to be in your life. Thank him for all of those things. These are all graces of God. Um, and then, you know, also, whenever you go through trials, the temptation is to forget, is to think that God has forgotten you. He has not forgotten you, even in your hardest trial. He has not forgotten you. And we remember those things until the trial gets long. And then we start to think that where where is God? Does he truly know what I'm going through? Does he truly care? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. And he is. If you're his child, he is pruning you. He is conforming you to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. He has not forgotten you. All right. God's foreknowledge. God is eternal. So the implication is that his knowledge extends to past, present and future. Uh, You know what? Before we go on, does anyone have any any questions or comments? No. Okay. God is eternal. So the implication is that his knowledge extends to past, present and future. God's omniscience for the future is called foreknowledge. The Latin for omniscience is omni, which means all, and scientia, which means knowledge. We talked about that before. That's all knowledge or all knowing, omniscience. For foreknowledge, the Latin is similar, but it's pre, meaning before, of course, and scientia, knowledge. So foreknowledge. God declares the end from the beginning. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 through 10. It says, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. All right. He declares the end 
from the beginning. And the Bible has many examples of God revealing future things, some of those which we'll talk about tonight, of course, but many examples of revealing future things before they take place. And then those things actually come to pass. However, there are some objections to God's foreknowledge and some questions that we may have had ourselves regarding foreknowledge. And we'll just talk about a few tonight. So one objection is God regrets and repents of some of his past decisions based on how people act. And that we talked about this um, early on in the attributes study. But Genesis chapter six, verses six through seven. <clears throat> and I think we talked about it in terms of his immutability. That God does not change. So when it says that he repents, does that mean that he changed or when he regrets something? Does that mean that he has changed. So Genesis chapter six, verses six through seven, it says the Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things and to birds of the sky. For I am sorry that I have made them. So you see an example of the Lord regretting, right? So the uh, the objection is since God repents or regrets, then he can't have foreknowledge of all things. Right. Because if he did, why would he repent of something? Why would he regret something? Um, but the answer back to that is this, that God's repentance reveals a change in relationships and actions. But God did not change for he is immutable. So it shows it reveals a change in relationships and actions. But God himself did not change for he is immutable. The language of God repenting or regretting <coughs> is language of condescension, which helps us understand infinite God better in our finite humanity. So when you hear that God repented or he regretted something, that's language that we use. We regret something, right? <clears throat> that is just God's condescension to help us understand him a little better. But he does not change. Don't let that language trick you into thinking that God has changed or that he did not know about that sin that was taking place well before it took place. OK, he knew about it. So. A change in God's plans would signify that he could not know his own plans with certainty, which would make him finite. He's infinite. We're finite. He doesn't change. So, again, that language of God repenting does not mean that he's changing in his person. Now, that relationship, the, you know, the benefits that those whom God was speaking to, that, that they received from him, right? Those things are going to change based off of how they were living, you know, but God himself did not change. 
so that's number one. Any questions, comments? Okay, number two, another objection is God tests people to see how they will act. So that's another objection to God's foreknowledge because why is he testing people to see how they act if he already knows all things? Where do we see this? Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So we see God testing Abraham, right? Verse 10, it says, Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. So, again, the argument is if. God has foreknowledge, if he has perfect knowledge, if he is omniscient, right? Why is he testing someone to see how they will act? And the question is this, does it mean that God increases in knowledge? No, he does not increase in knowledge because he knows everything all at once. So no, no increase in knowledge. For God to not know would be for him to be ignorant, and he would need to learn something new. God does not learn anything new. He knew of Abraham's faith through years of obedience, through years of Abraham's obedience. So Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. It says, then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So the Lord knew of, uh, you know, he knew of Abraham's faith through years of obedience. And then Hebrews 11 verses 8 through 16, you can write that down for later as well. But let's turn to James chapter 2 verses 21 through 22. All right. But God tests his people to confirm their genuineness and to bring them into maturity. God's test of Abraham brought his faith into greater activity. It perfected his faith. So James chapter two, verses twenty one through twenty two. Says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar. You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. So God's now I know God saying that he knows in terms of Abraham and his faithfulness to him and his faith in him. It was an expression of his pleasure and blessing upon 
Abraham's course of of life. Uh, Psalm, I'll read these ones for you. You don't have to turn there, but Psalm chapter one, verse six, and then Psalm thirty seven, eighteen. If you want to write that down, Psalm chapter one, verse six, it says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm chapter thirty seven, verse eighteen. says the Lord knows the days of the blameless and their inheritance will be forever. So the Lord knows already, you know, but the benefit to the testing of that when God does test us is that we get to see how to rely on him, to trust in him. And when you have faithfully relied on the Lord, what does that do for you? It makes you want to trust him more. And the next time you go through a trial, you can trust in the Lord even more because you have that trial from before where you have trusted in him and you you exercise that faith in him. That faith is being perfected in you. You're learning more about God and about his ways and how to trust him more. All right. Another. um, Let's see, just for the in the sake of time, won't go through them all. But God declares that his people do things that never entered his heart, God's heart or mine. So, for example, child sacrifice. You know, he says that these things never entered his heart or his mind. So the argument is, since it never entered in God's heart or mind, that he does not foresee all the sins that people will commit. Now, the scripture references for this, it's Jeremiah chapter seven, verse thirty one, chapter 19, verse five and chapter thirty two, verse thirty five. If you want to write those down, Um But this the argument is that this shows that God does not foresee all sins that people will commit. So this statement here that the people were doing things that never entered his heart or mind, something as atrocious as child sacrifice. It does not mean that he did not know that they were going to do these things, that they were capable of these things. This statement by God simply means that he did not desire it of his people. And again, not that he didn't know that people would commit such sins. He forbade it in, in the law of Moses, even before the days of Jeremiah. So the argument that he did not know or could not know or could not foresee goes out the door because he did know and he forbade that kind of uh, that kind of practice. But he did not desire any of those things for his people. Another one. Another argument is that God cannot know our future decisions for they are not determined and have no reality until we make them. 
If they were predetermined, then we would have no freedom to choose otherwise when the time came. So human responsibility is destroyed. That's an argument against God's foreknowledge. And this is kind of at the heart of the opposition to God's foreknowledge. The presupposition that man, that that human responsibility trumps divine lordship over the future. That's what this is, uh, you know, what that's getting at there. So this it's not taught in the Bible. So we can't impose that upon scripture. And there's no clear uh, logical contradiction between exhaustive divine foreknowledge and authentic human responsibility. And now I know that that is a topic that is talked about much, can be talked about for a long time, and you still may not see eye to eye with someone after those long conversations. But six principles concerning God's knowledge and man's will. And this is from, again, from uh, Stephen Sharnock, his existence and attributes of God, his book on the existence and attributes of God. Number one, the fact that something must occur does not take away the liberty of the doer. We may act freely, even though God determined our actions beforehand. Number two, (coughs) will cannot be compelled, for then it would cease to be will. When we have done what we desired, we cannot honestly say that anything was forced on us. Adam dared not accuse God of forcing him to sin. Judas, uh, he heard Christ foretell of the betrayal. He dared not accuse Christ of causing him to sin. He acted freely and became filled with feelings of unbearable personal guilt. Number three, considered in itself, God's foreknowledge is not the cause of anything. Even man with his limited foreknowledge of things does not thereby cause them to be. And we used this example last week. If a drunkard enters a bar, he will become drunk. But my knowledge of the fact is not causative to it. God's foreknowledge does not take away the liberty of man's will. God foreknows things because they will come to pass, but they do not come to pass because he knows them. Some things. uh, Some things God, uh, his will, he, he wills to do them himself. Other things he has will to permit his creatures to do by withholding restraint from them. This clears God from any complicity in sin or authorship of it. God not only foreknew the actions of man, but also the will of man. God's knowledge of man does not cause man to become less than man. Though God knows free agents, yet they remain in a position of freedom, not compulsion. 
In other words, God's knowledge establishes man's liberty rather than destroys it. To defend, number six, to defend the freedom of man's will, we should not deny God his perfection of knowledge. We may have to wait until the last day to better reconcile these two truths. Truly, his ways are past finding out. We should avoid fatalism on the one hand and atheism on the other. We must believe for knowledge because the Bible teaches it. Questions? <laughs> okay. Since God created the beginning and the end, mm-hmm. that means everything in between point A and B there is already orchestrated. Now, does that mean God cannot see something and decide to intervene a prayer, like whether it's a prayer being answered or intervene how like how we're acting down here anything like that Mm because if if so then that would ultimately like the butterfly effect kind of if he intervened without knowing he was going to intervene from the beginning it would ultimately impact b which would be the end Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i got you just confused if god still does intervene on things that he didn't plan out he was going to interview. So, <clears throat> everything that happens is under his control. Everything that will happen, he already knows. You know, everything that did happen in the past, he knew. There was nothing that ever surprised God. Now, when you get into... Um, questions like that, like, you know, like what you're asking with God intervening in an impossible situation, something that is just, you know, whatever the situation is, it's just heading for destruction one way or another. That's where it's going. Nothing can change that outside of a miracle from God. So everything in our minds, we have it made up. We see as as far as human possibility is concerned that there is no way that this situation is going to change except by God. And we don't even know the way that God can work that situation out. But yet he does intervene and a miracle happens and that's something that cannot be explained by our finite minds now exactly how it works now we can explain maybe the results like what happened but how god actually intervened you know it was a miraculous thing it was a miraculous intervention you know but did that change The course of history, not in God's mind, you know, because it was already, you know, we talked about his knowledge and him knowing all things perfectly and knowing all things at once. And if something was to come up, something was to happen that he didn't know about, that he had to jump in. It's like, oh, no, you know, and like you said, it's going to impact the end. Right. But he 
already knew that he was going to have to act. I mean, you go back to back to the garden when Adam sinned. You know what I mean? And sin entered into the world. That was a destructive act. And if God did not know what was going to happen, then it would have been a mess. Right. You know what I mean? But he already knew that was already part of what he knew, his omniscience. He knew that was going to happen. He knew what it was going to take to forgive mankind from of uh, of his sin. Is that kind of where you're going or? Well, yeah, I mean, essentially, just like if something came up or if he acted, did something that he didn't plan on doing and just. He never does. You know, he, he never does anything that he does not plan on uh, on doing. You know, everything that he does, it's planned, you know, it, because that would mean that he would have to learn something new and he doesn't learn anything new. You know, he's perfectly his omniscience. You know, he knows all things. Nothing at all surprises him. It surprises us, you know, but nothing surprises God. At, so at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, okay, gotcha. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, and, and I mean, listen, we can talk about it more. You know, always, always. I just wanted to add to that. So like, like people that are in Christ, Yeah, and even more so as we go along and learn more about God. And when we're asking for something, when we ask in the name of Jesus, you know, what we're asking for, we're saying, listen, all of my selfish wants aside, God, whatever your will is in the name of your son, that is the answer that we accept. You, you know what I mean? When God answers that, that is the that's the answer that we want. That's according to um, the will of God, because, you know, and not to get off topic, but so many people ask for things in Jesus name that have nothing to do with his will. And it's like that's absolutely not biblical. And you're just using God's name. You're using the name of Jesus as a as a footnote here pretty much for your for your benefit and that's how you see so many of these false teachers and false prophets and all of that 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 just blind people and get them to do all kinds of things because they say in Jesus name after it and you know but 
when we're saying in Jesus name, what we're saying is, God, I want your will for this request. So if the answer is no, then it's no. (laughs) You know what I mean? If nothing changes, then I'm still going to trust you. You you know what I mean? So, yeah. So we learn more and more about Christ. So where we're going to wrap up is on um, God's foreknowledge through his divine decree. So maybe that will help to understand a little bit, too. So how does God know the future? Does his knowledge cause it to take place? James Usher said this. He said, is the foreknowledge of God the cause of why things are done? No. And we talked about that. But his will, it's his will. So God eternally knows all that, all that will take place in history because he decreed it before his time began and he will execute it. He will execute his decree through his unfailing Providence Again, pointing back to Isaiah 46, uh, chapter uh, Isaiah 46, verses nine through ten. Remember the former things long past for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times. Things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. The Lord knows the future because he knows his will. God can declare the end from the beginning because he has planned it and nothing can stop him from bringing it to fruition. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 26 through 27, it says this is the plan devised against the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out against all the nations for the Lord of hosts has planned. And who can frustrate it? And as for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? Christ's suffering and death happened as it was determined. As Luke 22, uh, 22, 22 tells us. And to the determinate counsel of the foreknowledge of God, Acts chapter 2, verse 23 tells us. So this is God's. His decreeing things is his decretal foreknowledge. It's not fatalism. So it does not break the link between what we do and why we do it. Our choices cause our actions. Decretal knowledge provides a solid basis for the certainty of God's foreknowledge. Again, God knows what he has planned. John Gill says this, and there's two quotes, and then we'll close out. He says this. He says, now certain and immutable foreknowledge, such as foreknowledge of God, is founded upon some certain and immutable cause, which can be no no other than the divine will. God foreknows certainly that such and such things will be because he has determined in his will that they shall be. God knows himself and the possibilities of what he can do with the necessary knowledge. His knowledge of all other things is free because it depends upon his will. Stephen Charnock, 
to close out, he says this, God knows his own decree, and therefore all things which he had decreed to exist in time, not the minutest part of the world could have existed without his will. Not an action can be done without his will. So it comes down to the things that God decrees. You know, he, he has perfect foreknowledge. He knows all things that will happen and the things that he says in his word that will come to pass. We see in his word that some things did come to pass and those things that yet remain will come to pass. So how should we respond even to God's foreknowledge? Some of the things that we've already mentioned before, we should be in awe of God at all times. It should change the way that we worship God, knowing that he knows all things about us and what is going to take place in our lives and to know that we are in the hands of an all-knowing God should give us comfort. It should also humble us, right? It doesn't matter how much knowledge we acquire. Even on the, the, the theological side of things, learning about God, some know more than others do, but we better remain humble because it's still just scratching the surface. You know, again, we're going to be learning about God throughout eternity. So let's remain humble. And then it should give us hope, right? Hope, knowing that we are going to one day see Jesus as he is. We will be like him, for we will see him as he is. We will be in the presence of Almighty God for eternity, that eternal life, no sin. And I tell you, that is one of the greatest things to look forward to, no sin at all. We look forward to that day. Any questions before we pray? All right. Father, we thank you again for this time that we've had together. God, and again, this is just scratching the surface and it is just uh, it's a lot of information that we talked about, God. And truly, we know that your ways are unsearchable, unfathomable, but you have given us all that we need to know about life, about salvation, about God, about you, about your son, about the Holy Spirit, as it has to do with life and holiness and pursuit of your glory. We can find it in your word. But God, help us to rest in your knowledge. Lord, help us to thank you for the things that you do allow for us to learn, Lord, about you. But help us, Lord, to be in awe of what we learn about you and help us to seek after you daily. God, may we never be satisfied in what we learn, but may we be pricked to go deeper in your word, to find out about you, God. And when we do, give us 
that heart to share it with the world. Help us, God, now to tell the world about you, the things that we do know, the things that you have shown to us, the things that you have revealed to us. It's not just for us to hang on to, Lord, but no, we are supposed to go out into this world and share the goodness of Jesus Christ. May you give us the loving hearts that we need, God, to go out into this world and tell the world about you and let our light shine in the darkness. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.